Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series, Jesus Goes Global, today with a message entitled, Living with Mission and Expectation. So turn to your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 11, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. All Christians, no matter who they are or what denomination they happen to belong to, or even whether they're in an independent church, all Christians live with expectation. Yeah, I suppose it is true. Those of us who are getting older along with those who have a terminal disease are expecting that we're soon going to be welcomed into eternal dwellings. But we live with the expectation that in some hour the skies will open and Jesus himself will descend from heaven. And with that, he will reign over all things. The days of evil and sin and wars and sickness and hatred and death, I mean, they're going to be over. And the new age in which righteousness reigns forever is going to come upon us. Things aren't always going to be as they are today. Indeed, we stand at the precipice of a new and exciting era. So what's holding those things back? I have, as I've begun this series in Acts, been making the point that Jesus had said that this gospel would be preached to all nations and then the end will come. I've not said it, but I'm going to say it here. We really have no idea how to understand those words. I mean, just how thoroughly must all people groups hear? I mean, what does it mean for all nations to have access to the gospel? Does it mean there needs to be a faithful church made available to all people? Does it mean there needs to be a Bible in every language? Does it mean that the gospel needs to be available to all people groups? We don't know, but nonetheless, it is the task of all the followers of Jesus to be engaged in making Jesus known to the world in such a way that we will hasten the Lord's return. Now then, when the book of Acts begins, that task has not yet begun. All the disciples know for certain is that Jesus was crucified, he was laid in a tomb, and that he rose from death. He's conquered death and the grave. So clearly a new era was upon them, but they didn't yet know the entire agenda. So Luke has been telling us that for 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus has been instructing his disciples about the kingdom. And he said they are not to leave Jerusalem until the promise of the Holy Spirit comes upon them. That's how far we've come in our study. Now to Acts 1 verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? I know there are some who think this is a misguided question. So you hear people saying, look, the disciples still didn't understand that the kingdom of God was not a political kingdom in which the Romans would be defeated and Israel would return to her former glory in which she was governed by a political king and free from the oppression of foreign powers. And then it's as if, you know, people will roll their eyes and say, man, did the disciples get that wrong? They should have known that Jesus was going to build a spiritual kingdom. But when we think that and make that charge against the disciples, I think we have not understood. Luke has already told us for the last 40 days, Jesus has been carefully going over all that he taught his disciples about the kingdom of God. He is ensuring that they do understand. And we have to assume here that since they're so close to beginning their ministry to bring the gospel to the world, so we have to assume that Jesus is satisfied that his disciples understand the message of the kingdom. And so Jesus is ready now to leave them and go into heaven, and they are almost ready to begin their ministry. 
So notice also that they have a very specific question. They ask, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So clearly the disciples understand the idea that the kingdom of God does come inside of us, that we need our sins forgiven, that we need to be reconciled to the Father, that the transformation of the inner man or inner woman is essential to the kingdom of God. But they also understand that there is another aspect to the kingdom. I think George Eldon Ladd said it very well when he said that the kingdom of God is the final and the ultimate defeat of all evil. And the disciples understood well that this must occur within the context of the promises that were made in the Old Testament. So consider, for instance, the prophecy of Isaiah 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. So Jesse's the father of King David. And Isaiah prophesied that the kingdom of David would fall just like a massive tree falling in the forest. And from that stump, a shoot will come forth and that shoot will be the Messiah. And when the Messiah comes and sits on David's throne, then, according to Isaiah 11, the leopard will lie down with a young goat, the nursing child will play over a cobra's hole, and they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. And when that happens, the whole earth will be full of the glory of God. See, the disciples knew that. The Messiah would restore Israel, and from Israel, he would rule the earth, and evil would come to an end. And so it's very natural for them right now to ask the question. Help us understand. We know that we're on a mission to proclaim the kingdom of God to all nations, and we are to call men and women to repent of their sins and to surrender to you, Jesus. But we're still confused about one thing. Does our activity immediately coincide with your fulfilling of the ancient prophecies, or does that happen at another time? That's the question they're asking. And then Jesus answers them in two stages. First, he gives them an answer to their immediate question. Verse 7 says, He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. That is to say, Look, you're completely right in your expectation that that I'll set up a physical kingdom in Israel, and from there, I'll rule the world. As to when that occurs, God the Father has made a determination that he's not going to reveal that to you. That's so important for us to hear. If the apostles, who were eyewitnesses of Jesus and who were directly instructed by Jesus, didn't know how close they were to the physical kingdom in which Jesus would reign— If they didn't know how close that time was, who are we to imagine that we know better? I mean, please stop listening to people who claim to know where we are in the prophetic timetable. Truth be known, the Father has fixed those dates. It's not for you to know or to speculate in which season we now happen to live. Now, then having answered that, Jesus then tells them what the Father has decided to reveal to them. That's in verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So I need to stop and make a statement about verse 8. I think this one statement is the theme of the entire 28 chapters of the book of Acts. Take this statement and break it down into two sections. First, notice the promise. Then second, the mandate. Okay, the promise first. What would the disciples have understood in the promise that they would receive power after the Holy Spirit came upon them. It is quite possible they might have remembered what happened to Jesus himself. See, they would have known that just before Jesus entered into his full-time ministry, 
he was baptized by John, and then as he's coming out of the water, according to Luke 3.22, the Holy Spirit descended on him, and it was only after that that Jesus began his public ministry. So whatever the apostles thought, they, they must have imagined that even as the Holy Spirit empowered Jesus in his ministry, well, he'd also empower them in their own ministry. And given the results that Jesus had, they must have wondered how great a power would now be given to them. Now, as we go on, I'm going to say a great deal more about the promise and the fulfillment of the receiving of the Holy Spirit when he does come upon the disciples. But we will notice that not only did the disciples receive this baptism of the Holy Spirit, we also know that in Acts 2, all the believers in Jerusalem received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts 8, the Samaritans received it. In Acts 10, so did the Gentiles. Later, when Paul wrote the Corinthian Christians in 1 Corinthians 12, he would say, in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, meaning that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the inheritance of every single child of God after Pentecost. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. There's a promise. Jesus is saying, don't speculate about the time when I restore the kingdom to Israel. That time is coming. Instead, concentrate on this. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Obsess on that. Think about that. Anticipate that. But what kind of power would they receive? And the answer to that is found in the mandate that Jesus gives them. You will receive power to be my witnesses. So let's examine the mandate, the mandate to be witnesses of Jesus. What is it that the disciples are to do? So the word for witness, that's the Greek word marturion. We get our English word martyr from that word, but in truth, the Greeks didn't think of a witness as a martyr. There are many martyrs who are not witnesses. Indeed, the apostles were going to be something far greater than martyrs, although in the end, their witness would cost them their lives. Every week in Doubt, a ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, airs a new insightful conversation about issues of life and faith targeted to a young adult audience. These conversations include Christian pastors and leaders from around the globe discussing important topics from a biblical perspective. Topics such as the sanctity of life or forgiveness, sexuality, the church, issues of mental health, loneliness, abuse, always with the intention of offering a biblical response. Join InDoubt on air on the InDoubt.ca website, the InDoubt mobile app, or subscribe for our weekly podcast. We live in a time and place where the daily questions of life and faith are challenging. We believe the Bible will guide us toward truth and, and challenge us to live radically different lives. For more information about InDoubt or if you'd like to support this ministry, call us today at one 800 663-2425 or visit indoubt.ca. The book of Acts gives us a twofold meaning for the word witness. You know, the first definition is actually quite simple. A witness is someone who has seen something. If, for instance, you're called to be a witness at a traffic accident, it means that you're there. You saw it happen. And that's a unique role that the apostles had. Since the group of 12 witnesses 
have now been reduced to 11 with the defection of Judas, we find out later in chapter 1 that the disciples looked to replace him with someone else who had witnessed everything that Jesus did from the very beginning. So, first off, these apostles were to be witnesses in that sense. Now, I have a memory of a traffic accident. I was on my motorcycle one day and a car going very fast swerved right in front of me, crossed my lane, ran off the road, and crashed into a tree. Now, because the car had so narrowly missed me, I was a little shocked. Later, someone from the police phoned me and asked if I had witnessed it, and I said, yeah, I did. He then went on to ask me a number of very specific details, and to my surprise, I couldn't remember them. He then thanked me for my time, and he just hung up. I guess he concluded that I would not be a good and reliable witness if this case comes to trial. And so we should see that a witness is only a good witness if if they're both truthful and overwhelmingly accurate. And so in that sense, Jesus promises them that they will be witnesses. See, there's a promise that Jesus once made them, and it's found in John 14, 26. He says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And so in Acts 1, verse 8, Jesus is saying to the eleven, Look, in just a little while, you're going to receive power after the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you're going to recall and relate to others everything you have seen me do, and the Holy Spirit will ensure that you are accurate in every detail. And by the way, you know, the promise was fulfilled in our New Testament. It is the witness of the apostles. The Holy Spirit oversaw the work and made sure that every single word was written and is exactly as it actually happened, right down to the slightest stroke of the pen. And so that's the first sense in which the Holy Spirit would call the disciples to be witnesses. Unlike me, when observing an accident that almost took me out, I I proved to be no witness at all, for I got all the details wrong. But the disciples would get it right, right down to the smallest particulars. That's what the Holy Spirit would ensure they would do. Now, in that sense, the mandate of Acts 1 verse 8 is rather specific to the apostles only. None of us today are witnesses in that particular manner in which the apostles were. But there's a second way in which the book of Acts speaks about being a witness. And that also corresponds to how the ancient world thought of witnesses. Yeah, there were first-hand witnesses, but they were also secondary witnesses. And a secondary witness is someone who presents a testimony or defends or promotes a cause. That's to say, a witness, well, that's very much like an evangelist. A witness is someone who seeks to share a truth and then makes an appeal. And the person listening should submit to the truth that's being presented. Let me suggest a secular example. You know, while I'm recording this, You know, for the last several months, every single day, a provincial health officer has been encouraging us because of the coronavirus to wash our hands frequently and to observe social distancing so that we won't spread the virus to others. She's been witnessing of the importance of observing these standards. In the same way, a Christian witness seeks to persuade others that Jesus is really the Messiah. He's really the rightful king of everything. And since that's true, we need to turn from our sins and surrender our lives to his lordship. I mean, think of the way in which Paul said it in 2 Corinthians 5.20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. 
Notice Paul's confidence that God is making his appeal through him and through other believers. God is urging people to be reconciled to God through Jesus. God is urging the world that now is the time to get squared away with God. See, now's the time to acknowledge that we're estranged from God. Now's the time to accept God's free offer in Jesus. So how's God making that appeal? Paul says he's making it through us. We're witnesses. And in that sense, every Christian is to follow the example of the apostles and become witnesses. That's the mandate of the church. It's the mandate of all who belong to Jesus. God is making his appeal through us. We're witnesses. That's that's the promise of Acts 1 verse 8. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll receive power to be witnesses. And that's significant, especially for men like Peter. Now, you'll remember that when Jesus was being tried by the Jewish court, not once, but three times under great pressure, Peter had denied that he knew Jesus. I mean, given the cost of being a witness and the difficulty he was presently in, he fell prey to the deepest of his fears, and he just couldn't be a witness. But says Jesus, that's about to change in you. You will receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And so what would have been impossible before is now going to be a glorious reality. The drama, the action is only going to begin after you're baptized with the Holy Spirit. So keep reading, Acts 1, 9 to 11. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. See, the very next verse, which we're going to read tomorrow, tells us that all that took place while they were on the Mount of Olives. It was there that Jesus had spent that agonizing evening as he prayed, if it were possible, that God would take this cup from him. It was there that he expressed his desire that the disciples would stay with him and pray, but they couldn't. They all fell asleep. And it was there that Jesus was eventually arrested. But that was then. This is now. When Jesus promised them the Holy Spirit, then after that, we have to imagine, amazingly, he begins to rise from the earth. And they're staring at him. He just keeps rising until he's smaller and smaller figure, and he reaches the cloud, and one of the clouds took him out of sight. I can only imagine that this was a moment of utter silence. I imagine not one of the apostles said a single word. Suddenly, they're left standing alone, and he's gone. So what do they do? Well, all of them don't move. They just keep looking up as if they just can't believe it. This now is the end of the ministry of Jesus on earth. He he never said when he was coming back to sit as king on David's throne, but for now, he's no longer among them. And then suddenly two angels are standing beside them in white robes. So you might remember that both Luke and John mentioned that when Jesus rose from the dead, two angels in white appeared both to Mary Magdalene and also to the other women. It may well be that these two angels are the very same ones. And what the angels say is not meant as a rebuke, as in, what do you guys think you're doing here staring up into the sky? It's a word of encouragement. It's instruction. They simply remind the 11 of what Jesus taught them and what they already know. Luke 21, 27 speaks about the signs of his second coming. And Jesus taught his disciples, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And leaving and a cloud taking him out of the sight, but then coming with a cloud in the same manner. That's to say, don't be discouraged. 
because now for the first time, you are without Jesus personally here with you. Yeah, it is true. He has left you. It is true. He's returned to the Father. But from now on, you're going to have to live with expectation, knowing that he has kept every promise to you up to this point, and he's going to keep this one as well. He's going to come back. So from that moment on, the disciples would live in two ways. They would be from that time forward always on mission. And also from that point in time, they would live with a sense of expectation. I wonder how many times throughout their lives they must have inadvertently looked up into the sky and wondered if this would be the time. You know, in that sense, we're just like them, don't you think? Yeah, our lives have purpose. We are witnesses, and yet, just like them, we know that our very best days are definitely not behind us, are they? And we never yearn for the good old days, or at least we really shouldn't. We should be full of expectation. He's going to come again. And in the meantime, while we're awaiting and expecting his coming, let's be about the master's business. Look to the Holy Spirit to empower you and to give you all that you need to make Christ know among your friends, among those close to you, everywhere you can, be a witness of the gospel. It's the promise and it's the expectation that Christ has for his followers until he comes again. Thanks so much, John. Uh, A question for you. So we've been given the power of the Spirit to be witnesses, and yet so many of us feel as Christians like we're powerless in some respect to share the gospel. Help me understand. Yeah, I mean, there is a part of sharing the gospel that simply has to, you know, we have to teach people to be familiar with the gospel and to be able to articulate it. So, you know, if it's just simply a matter that there are believers out there that just don't know how to put the gospel together in a coherent fashion, we can help them with that. Uh, However, we also know that there are all sorts of other things that come in the way to prevent us from sharing the gospel. And uh, they might have to do with our own fear. Uh, They might have to do with the fact that we don't know how to be sensitive to someone who needs the Lord. Uh, And I think what we can do is allow the Holy Spirit to guide us, listen for his promptings, count on him giving us more power than we can ever uh, have on our own. And also know that, you know, if it's a matter of, you know, it becoming difficult, uh, the Holy Spirit is going to help us through. So uh, this is always a supernatural deal. Thank you, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Jesus Goes Global, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Hi, Ben Lowell from Back to the Bible Canada. You know, I'm so grateful to have a moment just to express our gratitude for offering your prayers and financial gifts this past month, but also remind you that you continue in our thoughts and prayers. Here at Back to the Bible Canada, our priority is to provide Bible teaching you can trust, uninterrupted, reaching the maximum number of people across the country, and your commitment allows this to happen. Well, in conversation with friends across Canada, it's become clear that in times of crisis, God's people are energized and sustained through a profound faith in a faithful God. But it's also clear that in times of crisis, people search for truth, something to place their confidence in when life is turned upside down. Well, thank you for continuing to stand with us and sharing God's word of truth. 
For more information about the ministries and resources available to you through Back to the Bible Canada, or to offer a gift to sustain this ministry, please call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.